chapter 39. Uh, we're continuing this series in Genesis that I'm calling Joseph from a pit to a palace. Now, this morning I'm preaching a particular message I've entitled, The Lord Was With Him. The Lord Was With Him. And if I could give this sermon a subtitle, Alan, I would call it, Don't Dig a Ditch with a Shovel When You've Got a Backhoe Out Back. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's common sense. You don't dig a ditch with a shovel when you've got a backhoe out back. What in the world are you talking about? My dad, as I've shared with you before, grew up in Switzerland with a dream of being a farmer, of all things. He dreamed of coming to the United States and having a farm. And so uh, in the mid-1970s, he was working as an accounts manager for Standard Oil Company in Tampa, Florida. And he purchased, in the late 60s actually, 20 acres of land out in the country that would eventually become the central tract of our family farm that I grew up on. Every weekend, Dad would go to that property, and he would, by hand, clear the palmettos with a shovel and with an axe. He did that several years uh, every Saturday until he got all the property cleared and he prepped it to be a citrus grove. Well, the orange grove didn't work out. Several freezes killed all the saplings. And so he tried several other agricultural ventures on that piece of property until finally he got two piglets, fed them, raised them to market size, sold them, and actually made some money. And so he saw that as a sign from God. God wants me to be a pig farmer. And so that's exactly what he did. And so while working full-time for Standard Oil Company, he began to grow this farm up to about 500 head of hogs, which is quite a bit. Now, let me just tell you how my dad managed doing that. Every day, here was his schedule. He would drive to work in this one-ton flatbed truck. That's actually me and my brother, if you see in that picture there, Luke, me and my brother in, in front of the one-ton 56 Ford Navy issue truck. My dad drove that on the 40-minute commute to Tampa, and uh, during his lunch break, he would go to the local granary, and he would get a ton of bulk hog feed. He'd go back, finish the day at work, and then come home, eat supper, and then by hand with a grain shovel, unload that one ton of grain feed into containers and feeders throughout the farm. He did this every day for several years. Well, about 1976, Standard Oil Company determined to relocate their corporate offices from Tampa to St. Louis, Missouri. And my dad had the option to move the family to St. Louis. And dad chose to take an early retirement and make a go of it at farming. So he grew the farm from about 500 animals to upwards of 2,000 animals. Eventually, we had about 6,000 hogs on our family farm. Now, obviously, with that many hogs, doing everything by hand is impossible. Impossible. So dad invested in a couple of pieces of equipment. One, a small tractor with a front end loader. That's me right there driving the tractor. And uh, we could dig dirt with that, move heavy things around with that. And then he bought a six-ton bulk feed truck. Now, you have to know, buying these two pieces of heavy equipment was revolutionary to the farm. What used to take hours to do now only took minutes. Why? You don't dig a ditch with a shovel when you got a backhoe, right? What's the point of all this? That's a nice story, Troy. Why are you telling us this? And what does this have to do with Joseph? Well, in our ongoing passage of Scripture, as we're looking at the story of Joseph, I hope you'll see where this connection is. You see, last week as we began this study in Joseph, I told you we look for, in interpreting the Bible, 
repeated words and phrases. Last week, the word was robe. We saw the robe throughout the chapter, and really in three areas. One, the robe was given to Joseph by his father Jacob as a designation that Joseph was the leader in the family. Joseph had responsible for his father's enterprises, and so it was a designation. But then we saw, secondly, that robe was stripped from him by his jealous brothers, literally dismantled, and Joseph was thrown into a pit. And then finally, thirdly, we saw the robe was sullied with the blood of a killed goat and given to their father as evidence that Joseph had, in fact, been killed by some wild animals. Meanwhile, Joseph has been sold for a slave price to some traveling Ishmaelite traders on their way to Egypt. And where we left Joseph off last week is he's tethered to a camel trudging the long walk from where they were in Dothan, which is not in South Alabama, all the way to Egypt. And that's where we pick it up today in Genesis chapter 39. We're going to read the whole chapter, 23 verses, and let's see what the Bible says. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything, kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph 
and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Did you catch the repeated phrase in that passage? It's clear what the inspired author Moses is trying to communicate over and over again. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 3, his master saw that he was with him. Verse 3 also, the Lord caused all that he did to succeed. Verse 5, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Moses. Verse 5 also, the Lord was on all that he did. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. In the last verse, 23, the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. No less than eight times. Moses presents this reality that God, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, was with Joseph. This is the overarching theme of this chapter. Through the ups and the downs, in the good times and in the bad times, in success and in loss, the Lord was with Joseph. Why? Well, Joseph's incredible success in life, his triumphs over temptation, his influence for the kingdom of God were all owing to the fact that God was with him. It wasn't because of his intellect, though he was a smart guy. It wasn't because of his hard work, though he was certainly a diligent man. It wasn't even because he was good looking, as the text describes, he was handsome in form and appearance. All those things amount to a shovel. But what was the power, the backhoe, the heavy equipment? The Lord was with him. The manifest presence of the Lord. What exactly does that phrase mean? Sometimes we say that to somebody. This morning I texted one of our church members who's experiencing time of loss, and I just say, I pray the Lord is with you. What do we mean by that? God be with you. You know, it used to people would use this word Godspeed when somebody was traveling or were embarking on some venture, which simply means Godspeed. God be with you as you go. What do we mean by that? Now, we know and we believe in the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere all the time. So in that sense, God is always with us. He's always everywhere. But when we talk about God being with you, we're talking about him being with you in a special sense in a favorable spiritual sense, in a manifest presence. It's this, it's the reality that God is with us to bless us and to keep us and to cause his face to shine upon us. When Jesus gave the great commission, the commission we seek to follow, make disciples of all nations, the promise he said is this, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The question is this, when is God with us in this special way? Is it just on the mountaintop experiences or is it in the valleys also or just in the day-to-day humdrum of life? Well, we know as believers, Christ has given us this promise. He will never leave us or forsake us. But I think the difficulty for us is this, maintaining a conscious awareness of God's presence with us. We have the, th- the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, residing within us. But it's a matter of knowing that, being aware of that, and enjoying 
the strength and encouragement we receive. So what we'll see in Joseph's life is this chapter is it's literally pulsating with the presence of God. And I want us to see particularly four things of how we see the Lord was with Joseph throughout this passage. The first one is this, the Lord was with Joseph in the dark adversity. The dark adversity. As the chapter opens, Joseph is 17 years old. He's the teenager. And he has been rejected like refuse by his jealous brothers. He's on his way to Egypt. He's enslaved. And verse 1 strikingly tells us he gets sold by these Ishmaelite traders as a slave to Potiphar. Just imagine you're Joseph. You're in a strange land. You speak a different language, a completely different culture, and there you are on an auction block, people coming up to you, prodding you, poking you, squeezing you to see if they think you'd be adequate to work in their enterprise, checking your teeth, checking your ears, like a piece of cattle being sold. And so Joseph, who who had dreams, legitimate dreams from God, that he'd be in a position of power, and even his own family would come down and, and bow in allegiance to him. Now he's a piece of property. And amazingly, after he was sold as a slave to Potiphar in verse 1, verse 2, remember there's no verse numbers in the original. This is together. He was sold as a slave. The Lord was with Joseph. In the darkest of adversity, the Lord is with Joseph. That's the most notable thing about his enslavement. Now, Joseph was sold to a man named Potiphar. We're told he was the captain of the guard. What that means is essentially he's the chief of police. He's the one who oversees the military that provides protection for Egypt's king, for Pharaoh. And I'm calling it here a dark adversity because there are confusing things that come into our lives. We we see through a glass darkly. There are mysterious things. There are losses and there are things that we go through that are difficult. We don't understand them. We can't interpret them. I was reminded this week of Psalm 36.6 where the psalmist declares this, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are are like the great deep. God's judgments, God's counsel, God's purposes, God's decisions are deep. We can't possibly fathom them or understand them or comprehend his ways. We don't possess the capacity or the competence to interpret all that God's doing in these dark adversities. The other day, Amy and I were flipping around on the television, and we came across PBS, The Joy of Painting with Bob Ross. What a great show, right? It's a happy little tree over here and a little squirrel over there. <laughs> you know, as we're watching him paint this painting, he starts off with just a broad strokes and swaths of color on the palette, from the palette, and onto the canvas. And then he puts a little stroke of a line here, a little another line there. And if you were to judge the beauty of that painting just by this out-of-place line here or this little ugly stick there, you think, what in the world? 
But you can't judge the whole picture by that, nor the, the beauty or the value of that painting. It's not until you see the whole scope of it at the end of the show you realize, this is amazing how all these things came together to make this beautiful and incredible painting. Friend, the same is true for us in our life with God. There are times that God with his paintbrush brings a strike and a stroke, sometimes of the knife, and we don't get it. We don't understand it. We can't comprehend it, but we don't see the whole picture. It is a part of God's purposes. In Joseph's life, this adage was certainly true. Our disappointments are God's appointments. And we hold on to this truth that one day, believers in glory... I was reminded of this old hymn. We'll understand it better by and by. By and by, when the morning comes, we'll understand it better by and by. God was, is painting with every brush stroke a glorious picture for his glory and for our good. And there's going to come a day, friends, when we are in glory, when we're in heaven, and we look back at these dark adversities And we're going to see how they were a part of the whole of the beautiful, sovereign picture of God. And you know what it's going to compel us to do even then? Greater worship. It's going to compel us to deeper praise. And we're going to sing the song of Moses. We're going to sing the song of Revelation 15, verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great! And amazing are your deeds. O Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. One day we'll understand everything. We'll see that God never allowed a single thing in our lives. God never allowed us to cry one tear that he's not stored up in his bottle. A bottle that's going to be our praise. That leads to our holiness and leads to his glory. And so knowing all these realities and understanding the strange words that are paired together, he was sold as a slave and the Lord was with him, helps us understand that even in our darkest adversities, we have the presence of the Lord. The Lord was with him in the dark adversities. But secondly, the Lord was with him in the distinguished prosperity. The Lord was with Joseph in a very distinguished prosperity. Now, he had been sold to one named Potiphar. Potiphar, it turns out, is an aristocrat, one of the most powerful and influential men in all of Egypt. You see, Joseph could have been sold to a farmer, which means he would have been working out in the fields from sunup till sundown. Slaves that were sold to farmers usually didn't live very long. He could have been sold to a brickmaker, where from sunup to sundown he was taking clay and mud and water and forming bricks all day long. That's rewarding work, isn't it? (laughs) But in God's providence, he was sold to a very influential man. And verse 4 says, So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. What does that mean, that he, he attended him? Joseph was Potiphar's personal assistant. He took care of all of Potiphar's personal needs, so much so that Potiphar promoted him to number one in the house. He was in charge of the entire estate. In fact, Potiphar didn't really even know what was going on in his world, like most owners of businesses. I'm only kidding. He didn't really know what was happening in his businesses because he left everything in charge to a capable manager. 
So much so that verse 6 tells us because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. He was just worried about what was for dinner. Joseph spent a period of about 10 years in Potiphar's house, and he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? He was the estate manager. Now, why did Joseph experience prosperity? Again, incredibly intelligent, very gifted, articulate. No doubt he learned the language and he learned the culture of this new land. He was a hardworking person. But all of those, again, just a shovel. He experienced distinguished prosperity because the Lord was with him. Friends, you may make some headway in this life because of your personal giftedness, because of your acumen in certain areas, because of your, your, your articulate and your knowledgeable, you're smart, you're educated. That's just penance compared to what you can accomplish for God's glory and for your good because of your awareness of the presence of God in your life. This past summer, our whole family went to Orlando on vacation. Not sure why we'd go to Florida. Oh, my goodness. But we did. We went to Orlando for a week. And one of those days, we designated to drive the 40 minutes across uh, the state to the coast, the Atlantic coast, where we went to Cocoa Beach and spent a day at the beach. And you all know how much I love the beach. So before we got there, we, we had an, a um, kite. So we got this kite. I think, Ashley, did you buy the kite? Yeah, Ashley brought, bought the kite. And so I tell Carson, my four-year-old grandson, hey, we're going to fly this kite. He's excited. So we undo the kite from the package and go out there. And I tell him to back up and I unwind about 30 feet of string. And he's got the kite. I said, okay, Carson, on the count of three, you throw it up as high as I can. And Papa's going to run and we're going to see this kite take off, right? So sure enough, I go, one, two, three. He throws it up and I take off running and, you know, it just kind of flutters and flops around. Well, Carson thought that was awesome. Watching Papa trudge through the sand barefooted, pulling a kite. Well, this is about four or five times. And Papa was out of wind because there was no wind. So I said, let's try this later, Carson. A little bit later, sure enough, we feel a breeze kicking up. I said, okay, Carson, let's go try to fly the kite again. I think it's going to work this time. And that's what we do. We go out there. I say, okay, Carson, on count of three, throw it up. He throws it up and I don't even have to run. The wind just catches it. I start unwinding string and unwinding string. We're just watching it shoot up to the sky. I hand Carson the handle and he's just holding on to it. I don't know, for like a half an hour, he's holding on to this handle, just loving watching this kite soar up in the sky. What's the difference? The difference was doing it in my own power and my own strength versus the power of the wind. And I find it interesting that both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the word for spirit, in Hebrew it's ruach. The word for spirit in the New Testament in Greek is pneuma, means wind, breath, the power of the sails that thrust the boat forward. That's why the Old Testament prophet Zechariah would write these words, not by might, nor by power, but how? By my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And Jesus gave these words to his disciples gathered just before he ascended. But you will receive power when the hagiu numatas, holy breath, has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Amazingly, Joseph doesn't surrender to the pressures around him. Instead, he flourishes. Why? Because he is so aware of God's presence in his life. You see, his jealous brothers 
They could separate him from his earthly father, but they could never separate Joseph from his heavenly father. The Lord was with them. Joseph communed with God, and God prospered him. And Christian, here is the reality of this special spiritual presence of God. He is with his people. There's nothing like it in all the world. Joseph is living out what Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah 43. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. And and here's what's amazing too, is the presence of God in Joseph's life was evident to his boss. His name was Potiphar. Part of his name includes the name Ra, which was the Egyptian sun god, Ra. Potiphar is a pagan, idolatrous sun worshiper. But the name of Yahweh comes out of his mouth because of Joseph's life. Look again at verse 3. His master saw that the Lord, that's all caps, which means it signifies Yahweh in the Hebrew, saw that Yahweh was with him and that the Yahweh, Yahweh caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Joseph must have spoken to Potiphar about the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. And Potiphar saw that Joseph's life was in step with his lips. Potiphar saw that Joseph's walk was congruous with his witness. And not only did Joseph prosper, But Potiphar prospered. Potiphar's enterprise expanded. And this is in keeping with the patriarchal promise that came to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. All the nations of the earth through you shall be blessed. And friends, just as Potiphar saw that Yahweh was with Joseph in the same way in our lives today, the people we come into contact with can see whether or not we have the presence of Yahweh in our lives. Our unbelievers, listen, moved to glorify God who's foreign to them. Our unbelievers moved to glorify Him because of the life you live in front of them. The neighbor who's in your community, in your occupation, your coworker, your boss, your employees. When you check out at the grocery store, the cashier, who's doing her best, the server at the restaurant, the teller you look at through the screen and the bank drive through is your life giving evidence of Yahweh, His presence. And don't miss this application. In your social media world, do you give more evidence to the greatness of God or your astute opinion on whatever the latest hot topic issue is? We have a responsibility as people of God to display the glory of God in every area of our lives. God was with Joseph in the dark adversity. God was with Joseph in this distinguished prosperity. But thirdly, I want you to see God was with Joseph in the devilish perversity. Scholars tell us that ancient inscriptions and engravings in Egypt during this period in history demonstrates that Egyptian women, particularly Egyptian women of means, 
were given to fleshly appetites. They were known for drinking excessively and sexual promiscuity. Mrs. Potiphar, it seems, is no exception. She is the wife of a leading nobleman in Egypt, and it seems as soon as another house slave comes into the home, she begins sizing them up immediately. The flow of the narrative sets it up this way. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. In other words, he was good-looking, and he had a chiseled physique. He was a stud, a good-looking dude, great body, and his good looks did not escape Mrs. Potiphar. The verse continues, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. She began looking at him up and down, and it goes from a longing look to a perverted pursuit, said, lie with me. Now, we shouldn't minimize how tempting this would have been for Joseph. This was a real temptation. Remember, he's away from his family. He's away from his father who loves him. He's gone through quite the ordeal, being thrown out, sold into slavery, purchased by Potiphar, and in a strange land and strange people. And now this strange woman is coming after him. This temptation would have been legitimately difficult. It's real. From a physiological perspective, he's young. He's a man. His libido is at its height. He's immersed further in the midst of a promiscuous culture. Nobody saw anything wrong with sexual immorality in that culture. So the world in which he lived all saw everything as fine. He's in a difficult circumstance. Further, He's just experienced great success as well. And sometimes the most tempting times we can have is after a triumph. Well, first she tries to seduce him through her eye language. She begins casting these looks and he turns away. But as Satan always does in temptation, he ratchets it up another level. She goes from just alluring looks to now seductive talks. She, she tries to use her words and no doubt Lewd comments, suggestive gestures are being thrown at this young, attractive, virile man every day. Day after day after day, the text says. And then the day came. She seized her opportunity. He's alone in the house with her. Now, we don't know. The text doesn't say, but I think we could infer. She may have sent the other house servants out on errands so she could be alone with Joseph. And there they are. No one's watching No one's around. So she grabs him by the garment and she says, lie with me. In Hebrew, it's just two words. Friends, this is how Satan operates. He has been tempting humans a very long time. He's very skilled at putting just the right temptation in front of us so that we will fall. And that's what he does with Joseph. But Amazingly, Joseph refuses again and again and again. She tempts him with two words in the Hebrew. He responds, his rebuttal in verses 8 and 9, with about 30 words in the Hebrew. He's giving this response that shows he will not succumb to the temptation. And Joseph's response of this continual sexual temptation is really for us an excellent model 
of how to avoid temptation 3,700 years later. Because let's face it, human nature hasn't changed in 3,700 years. In fact, in my opinion, this passage here in, Ephes- in uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 39 is probably the best model for how to overcome temptation aside from one, and that's Jesus' model in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 4. So I want us to just look real quickly at Joseph's model for overcoming temptation. I just want to point out six things we see in him that I think would be helpful for us today. First one is this. Number one, we see him refuse immediately. He refuses immediately. And that's a simple and straightforward strategy. When the temptation comes, you just refuse it. You don't contemplate it. You don't consider it. You don't think about it. You just flat out say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not doing it. Here's the second thing he does. He recalls opportunities. He starts to recall the opportunities God's given him. And how could these opportunities be ruined if he gives in to the temptation, if he succumbs to it? What all will be put at risk? And the next one's kind of connected to that. He remembers responsibilities. Joseph says, in effect, Mrs. Potiphar, your husband trusts me. He's trusted everything to me, including you. I have a responsibility. And friends, as we encounter temptation, we need to remember we have a responsibility not just for ourselves. We have a responsibility for the other person who may be tempting us in this type of scenario. We have a responsibility to our families. Single people, you have a responsibility for your future mate. The way you act today will impact your future marriage. Remember your responsibilities. Here's the fourth thing. He reveals the iniquity. We must call sin what it is. It's sin. It's wickedness. It's not this common, innocuous term that's used today. Oh, they had an affair. That's so light, so fluffy, an affair. It's not an affair. What did he call it? Great wickedness and sin against God. Call it for what it is. Here's the fifth thing he did. He refused repeatedly. (laughs) He kept saying no day after day after day. He didn't even want to be in the same room with her. She walked in a room. He walked out. She popped around a corner. He turned the opposite direction. Refuse repeatedly and constantly. He diligently kept this temptation at a distance. And here's the final thing he did. Number six, run instantly. (laughs) Just take off. Get away. When she finally had him cornered, she had a hold of him. He runs. Friends, this is not a cowardly man. This is the mark of a brave man, of a courageous man. Paul gave the same advice to his young son in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. But friends, the overarching reality that flows through all six of these strategies that Joseph modeled for us in this resisting of temptation was this. He was aware of the presence of the Lord. How do we know that? Again, verse 10, in his rebuttal to her, I can't do this great wickedness and what? Sin against God. This reminded me of David's prayer of confession in Psalm 51. See, David's sin was not just against himself, against Bathsheba, 
against their unborn son, against the people of Israel that he was ruling over, against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. Friends, we come together to that reality. Ultimately, we recognize the presence of God. Overcoming sin, overcoming temptation will be ramped up in your life if you have a conscious awareness of God being with you. How does Mrs. Potiphar respond to Joseph's spurning of her seducing advances? Well, that leads to the fourth and final thing I want us to see this morning. Number four, God was with Joseph finally in the depressing inequity. (laughs) Joseph is falsely accused of attempted rape. And on the surface, you may think, well, What's the use in fighting temptation and resisting sin when in the end things go terribly wrong for Joseph? He's thrown into prison for something he didn't do. It's called walking in integrity. Regardless, walking in purity. Her response reminded me of the 17th century English poet William Congrave. Many of you have heard this phrase, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Mrs. Potiphar was scorned by Joseph, and so her fury is the response. She turns viciously on this righteous and moral and upright man. She attempts to totally destroy his life. And she refers to Joseph twice as this Hebrew. It's a racist comment. And she sets up all the evidence to make it look like the tale that she's weaving is true. And it seems, at least on the surface, her husband believes her. In verse 20, it says, And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Psalm 105 actually expands, interestingly, on Joseph's treatment in that prison. It says he was shackled to the wall, and his chains were, his feet were chained up. What a fall from prosperity. Think about it. One morning, he's the chief. He's in charge. He's the regent over all of Potiphar's estate. The next morning, he's chained in a torture cell in prison. What a depressing inequity. But look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. I love that conjunction, but. He was treated unfairly, but. He was falsely accused, but. He was wrongfully imprisoned, but the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him in several ways. For one, the Lord was with him in the grace of the prison he was put into. The text says he was put in the king's prison where the king's prisoners were. This grace will become evident next week in our series in Joseph. He was also with Joseph in the fact that Potiphar didn't have him killed. I mean, you think about it, a household slave messing around with your wife, that's reason for execution. And swiftly, I think, this is just conjecture, maybe Potiphar was aware of his wife's proclivities. Maybe to satisfy his wife's screaming, he put him in prison instead of having him killed. And God was with Joseph in the prison as he was put in charge of all the prisoners and all that was happening in the prison. God's favor continued to rest on him. He was given responsibility for it all. And God is with him. Why? 
in all these situations, in the ups and the downs and the highs and the lows and the victories and the defeats, God is with him because God is training him. God is preparing this young man. Over this 10-year period of time, he's performing a sanctifying work in him. Why? Because Joseph will be used to bring salvation to the known world in a time of unprecedented famine. Let me ask you this as we move towards the conclusion. Do you want that kind of consciousness of the Lord's presence in your life? Do you want that kind of keen awareness that God is with you regardless of the circumstances, no matter the situation, in times of prosperity and tremendous need? Here's the secret. Listen. It comes down to knowing Jesus. That's it. It comes down to knowing Jesus. Do you know him? I told you last week there are incredible parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus. Tell me, who does this sound like? A favored son goes down to a distant land. There he takes upon himself the form of a servant. And as a servant, the people around him recognize and realize there's something unique about him. He grows in favor with God and man. He's tempted with everything Satan can hurl at him, yet he never falls. He falsely accused for something he never did. He's condemned, although he's completely innocent. He endures the darkness of suffering. But God is going to bring him out of the darkness of that suffering and raise him up and elevate him to a position of authority he never even had before. Amazing parallels between Joseph and Jesus. And God does all this in Jesus so that hell-deserving sinners like you and like me can know this Jesus who has taken in his own body in that punishment he received, the punishment for our sins. As I close, I want us to consider another Joseph. A Joseph that would come along some 1,700 years later. This Joseph was the adopted father of Jesus. And as he is perplexed about the pregnancy of his fiancée, Mary, An angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream. And notice what the angel says to him in Matthew 1. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Lord being with Joseph, because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He's with us in the times of our dark adversity. He's with us in times of distinguished prosperity. He's with us in the times of devilish perversity when Satan throws everything at us. And he's with us even in depressing inequities when life just ain't fair. God is with us. He is Emmanuel. And that leads to my last thought. The key 
to victory in our day-to-day lives is full awareness and complete assurance of the presence of God with us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.